Welcome to the Game and Gadget Podcast. James Wilcock from PixelRefresh.com and today I have with me, as pretty much every podcast I've done so far, Tony Warriner, co-founder of Revolution Software, hardcore programmer for his <laughs> new game, and we'll explain a little bit about that later. Uh, great to have you on board again, Tony. Good to be here. So I thought I'd start with, I guess, some sad news. So Sir Clive Sinclair has passed away. At the yeah. good old age of 81. I think, if that isn't sad enough, I think the most upsetting thing is, everywhere I see this mentioned, it's this image or a video yeah. of him in this vehicle. It's and to be so, honest, I feel like, yeah. is, does that really have to be his legacy? <laughs> That's the media for you. That's what they do. They'll they'll pick the negative, won't they? They'll say, what's the, what's the daftest thing we could print? Let's spin it slightly negatively and this is what we'll do, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a shame. But the BBC basically say he died aged eighty one, was one of Britain's most prolific inventors. Largely self taught, he began inventing gadgets while he was still at school. And then it goes on about the ZX Spectrum. Now I think for me, that's what Clive Sinclair represents in the computing world. It's the ZX Spectrum. And in particular da -da -da, the ZX Spectrum 80 and 81. ZX80, ZX81, yeah. I never saw, I, I was thinking about this recently because of all the writing I've been doing about the 80s dev scene. And um, yeah, I never saw a ZX80 at all. I was not aware of that um, that machine. But then I remember starting to see the adverts in newspapers for the ZX81. Mm -hmm. and, and none of us really knew what it was. Like, because it was so, it was just nothing, nothing like it ever, ever seen before, you know. Because I mean, I was trying to get into electronics, and it was like something you could do that's a bit more, a bit interesting, and you know, building. You, you could get lots of, you could go to the Tandy shops, and you could buy like a radio kit, and you could put little, little diodes and stuff together, and you'd get a radio, and and I mean, it was all, it was all right, it was that kind of stuff, but you couldn't really understand it. I mean, analog electronics, it's, it's kind of weird you know it's it's like how does it work no one knows it's it's it's, it's just weird ass stuff you know so you could make the kits and you know you'd go along to the tandy shop and you try you try something a bit more advanced you'd, you'd go along and buy a load of bits and they'd never have quite what you wanted so they'd, they'd sell you something slightly different <laughs> which they'd go oh this will work and like it, of course it wouldn't work you know and then you'd, you'd screw it all together and blow it up you know and then and then that that would be your fun over for a, another month while you Waited to go back into into the city to buy some more bits, you know, and it was kind. Of, I mean, it was kind of all right, but the potential of it, it kind of looked like it was something that was going to be really great, but it it 
it kind of wasn't. And then, and then, you know, a friend of mine got Spectrum. No, uh, no, he actually got an, a friend of mine got a ZX eighty one from off the back of these adverts that started appearing. And and like when you saw that machine, you go, aha! Now this is something interesting because you can play about with it all day long and and it does things and and it doesn't blow up you know <laughs> you don't have to buy more bits and sell them together to do the next thing so like suddenly it was like forget electronics and and computers are the thing you know and and you know that was uncle clive wasn't it exactly and the the target for the zx81 in particular was it was under 100 pounds yeah I mean, it seems Which amazing. Was quite now, an achievement. It? Yeah, I mean, I guess the equivalent now would be the Raspberry Pi, where they had a target figure they wanted to meet, and that's a you know a really affordable computer. In fact, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm still amazed the by Raspberry the Raspberry Pi Zero. <laughs> nice. They're like so, five quid out there, or something. A little bit more expensive at the minute because of the shortages, but yeah, right. It's, uh, that's going to be powering something I haven't decided yet. <laughs> right. I have one. I have a Raspberry Pi in a, somewhere in a box. Um, I ought to. I always say I'm going to do something with them, but I never, never get around to it. But yeah, yeah, that's my fourth now. It's become an addiction. <laughs> right, and you're using them for things. Yeah, exactly. So um, I've got a Raspberry Pi four, which is mainly for retro Pi. Mm. So it's just a handy portable device, and I take it over to friends, and we'll play four player game. Of, Bomberman or whatever, and then I'll just show them the wonders. You know, of all the a lot of the uh, people I meet, um, there'll be families, and they'll have children of different ages, and they'll not have really seen classic eight-bit games or sixteen-bit games. To sh- to show them a Commodore sixty-four game, mm. or to show them a Sega Mega Drive game, even it's they've seen modern equivalents now. The there's a nice big following of having games that harken back to earlier days. But, you know, mm. there was a a period of time where it had to be 3D or it had to look modern or it had to be all singing or dancing. But now there's just, at least in the last five years or so, there seems to be a nice nostalgia trip and they're not scared to look at old styles of gameplay. But for a lot of children, they still haven't experienced the timeline, if you like. I feel like I, born in 81... Born in 81. Born mm. in 81. Was just around the right time to see, you know, 8-bit computers, you know, things like the early Ataris, the 2600, and then working your way forward through Commodore 64s and um, Acorns and Amigas and Atari computers and then Sega Mega Drives and Saturns and Drink, and it goes on and on. But I feel like I've had the, the good span of that timeline and being able to enjoy it from start to finish to appreciate that timeline that there has been a progression yeah yeah well i mean so do i but then i was 13 in i think in in 81 so i was like right right in right in the thick of it you know in, in real time so what's your earliest memory then of an electronic device as in a computer well an electronic device i mean electronic device. We'll sort of consider I mean, uh, for example, yeah, telephones. Well, yeah, <laughs> they were the ones. They were the ones that like were, that were like you have to dial it like that. Yeah, and it goes do 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 back, and then you go. And it yeah, goes, I'm not that young. We had one of those back in the day. Finally, they were crap. They really were. But 
I do remember like, one of the earliest electronic devices I had was like a pocket dictionary thing, but it was electronic. And I was fascinated by it just because it was electronic. I guess that was me, one of my first geek outs at the time was I had this little pocket calculator thing. I mean, calculators could be little computers themselves. I suppose they are, aren't they? I'll tell you what I saw. I remember before computers that I remember what were called TV games. And they were basically, they, they looked like, um, they looked like those old Ataris that with a sort of wood effect. Um, there was an Atari, wasn't there? I had a kind of a look like wood, fake wood effect. Um, yeah, I think the 2600 had one of those. Yeah, something like that. And you could, you could get what was called a TV game, plug it into your TV and you could play like Pong. And, and like, it was just literally like the white paddles and, a, and, a, and the ball going, doo, doo, doo. I mean, that was, that was the first of, of, electronic game i saw um i mean there was calculators and stuff like that <laughs> in fact let me show you something Ooh. show and tell from tony this is good show and tell yeah uh so you see this okay so for those listening he's just shown me a tandy calculator it's a tandy calculator but look look how right see the thinness it's certainly thin it's about four mils okay thick and it's got no battery okay mm -hmm. And this has been this has been on since about nineteen eighty four, yeah. Now, considering we live in the UK, having anything solar powered that last that long has got to be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's still it's still on. It still works, and it's got hex and binary, right? Uh, as as a, as modes, still working. Four mils thick, nineteen eighty four. So there you go. And like, you can't, you don't see something as cool as this. I mean, this is like, I still think this is really cool I and mean, it looks cool and it, it is cool, you know, but it's like, what's that 30 odd years ago? Does it say what the model number is on it for those who are interested? Model number EC-4016. I'm going to Google it myself after this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It might be worth a million quid, doesn't it? Ooh. <laughs> Do you reckon? <laughs> um, I, I, for your benefit, I'd like to think so, but I think your chances are fairly slim. <laughs> I had another calculator, a sharp one, that was programmable. Yeah, that was the big thing. Programmable calculators come out, and everyone was like going, oh, brilliant, we can, we can do some programming on them. And it wasn't quite as interesting as you thought it was going to be. Um, but that got stolen at school, so I haven't got that. So what could you do with a programmable calculator? Uh, it's a good question. I think you could put like an equation in where you could have variables in effect, I think. So you, you could, you could store a sum and, and like have, have variables for some of the inputs, I suppose. So like, I don't know, imagine a simple one n n times seven and you could change, you store that as a program, I suppose. And then the n you could change it to anything you wanted and then it would, add it to seven <laughs> or times it to by seven, whatever I said. Uh, and that was your programmable little, little maths thing. Yeah, so it so wasn't that even, interesting. Yeah. Not even basic then. <laughs> no, no, it, it was, I mean, it did, it did what it, what it, what they said it was going to do, but we, we were thinking, Oh, we, maybe you can make games on these, you know, but uh, no, it wasn't that good, but it had a dot matrix display. So that was, that was quite, that's quite interesting. So it didn't have the, you know, like on that one there, it's the, the digits are made up of the 
um, what would it be? One, two, three, seven, seven components to make up the to make up the numbers. But this one was dot. This one was dots, which was quite interesting. Never seen that before at the time. Well, it's amazing. Your original calculator still works to this day from 1984. It would have been about because I got it. Well, I got it. Yeah, I got it for programming because it did hex. You see, you could do hex. Uh, you could change a number from binary into hex or 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 decimal just by changing its mode. Um, so, so it was quite useful when I was programming uh, assembly. So, because you, 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 all, all, the, all the assembly programming was putting in just hex numbers. So, if you want, if you had a real number and you wanted, you couldn't work it out in your head. Then you just put it through the calculator. So, and that's what I used it for. Simple stuff, but it was as a, as a decimal to hex and back convert, conversion device. It was quite useful. So, I mean, I would, I would have got that for programming. Yeah, sometime mid mid eighties or early eighties or something like that. So, what would but be the first serious device? I'm guessing it would possibly be an eight bit computer. We really started programming and then experimenting what you could do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I skipped the ZX eighty one and and because um, uh, if I remember, it was just past Christmas when when uh, my friend got his. And I, and I, so like Christmas would have been the great time to get the ZX81, but I'd missed that as a long time to the next Christmas. So I started saving up for a, for a computer. And then I sort of read all the magazines um, and picked, and there was a new one coming out, the Lynx, computers Lynx, which no one knows about, but it was a British, it was obviously a British thing. Um, and it's quite good for programming. So programming Z80. So I, I saved up for one of those. And probably got that six months later. And I mean, when I look at early 8-bit computers, they made such a big thing about how much memory they would have. I mean, you look at the Commodore 64, 64K, but then there was only like 38K, which was actually available to use. It was after it loaded the basic stuff. To yeah, think well, they got all yeah. that out of that machine at the time. And there's people still programming games for the like the Commodore sixty four. It's amazing. Yeah, well, sixty four k on on an eight bit machine is quite that's quite a lot, really. I mean, you can do a lot with that. It's it's not infinite, but it's. I mean, it's a nice constraint. It's not it's not too little, and you know, you can pick the game you want to write and pretty much do it. I mean, one to eight, one to eight probably would be would be would open up some you know like games with big maps maybe maybe a, maybe rpg type things with a big you know ultimate ultimate type games with a big a big map with persistent things on you might want a bit more than 64 so you but you could do you could probably do anything you wanted in 128k you know not that we never we never had 128k to use but um uh but yeah i mean that would be all you'd ever need yeah i think the zx you'd never, you'd never need more yeah, the ZX81, I think, came in two memory sizes. You could buy it in the, it was 48K or 128K. The, the 81? Hmm, I think so. No, the base machine was 1K, wasn't it? Then what you'd buy is you'd buy a 16K RAM pack. For the 81? For the 81. Wow. I think the 81 was just 1K. Okay. The, spe the Spectrum was two models, a 16K one and a, and a 48K one. You don't believe me, do you? No, I'm no you're right. Googling I, 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 no, of course. <laughs> you have to Google everything in life. 
Yeah, Ali, 16K or 48K. Wow. That's... So I was right about the top end. It's 48, but the lowest end is 16. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 16 was all right. I mean, it seemed like after after 1K, 16 was like, everyone was, was 16, it's far more than you'll ever need. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then it was like, 48, it's, it's far too much. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, towards the end of these machines, they all had 128K, didn't they? But it was a pain because you had to bank switch it around and, and like, because the, the CPUs couldn't address that, that extra memory easily. So you were switching it around and no one ever used it, you know, really. They maybe do yeah. now, actually. I think people writing Spectrum games now, you see them, and they're often 1 to 8K, aren't they? Indeed. I mean, Bill Gates was often quoted as saying uh, 640K of memory would be enough for any computer. And yeah. I think that's probably a misquote. <laughs> but still, you know, probably back in the day when you had a larger number. I mean, when I think I've got 32 gigabytes of RAM in the computer I'm using, I mean, that's an insane number, but roll on 10 years and it might feel, oh, well, I've got 128 gigabytes now. And it's just, it's just the progression of technology. But I still find it fascinating in the 8-bit era how much they actually managed to get out of those machines and that people today are still really pushing the boundaries of what's possible because we've got much more experience with the hardware. I, I I like the constraint to be honest. I mean, the sixty four sixty four k is just a nice number, and and you, you can expand your program into it, but you can't you can't go beyond it. You know, it's it a very good balance for those machines, like a, like a, a, a Commodore sixty four. You know, the, the processor to memory ratio is is just spot on. You know, it's exactly right. <laughs> and you'd, you'd never have studios with uh, 500 people writing a game for it because you'd, you'd never need it, you know. Indeed. And talking of 8-bit, I've had a recent acquisition. And it's quite a big thing. It's actually bigger than I realised. <laughs> but, oh, oh, there we go. Nice. So this is a Nintendo... Let me go a bit closer to the camera. Is it? No, further away. Further away. There we go. Nintendo Entertainment System, um, 8-bit console, never owned one myself, just played emulation in the past, but um, it's quite yellow. Yellow <laughs> is very, it? That's a shame. Very yellow. Can you but fix that? Quite, but I got it quite cheap. I've never retro-brighted anything myself, but now I've got this. This is my new project to give it a go. I've picked the worst time. Now we're just turning into autumn where there's no sun, which is like a crucial element to the retro brighting process. Is that true? Yeah. Well, it's either sun or UV lights. To, to make it go white. Mm -hmm. That's from the YouTube channels I watch. That seems to be the way to go. Now it's for Americans who have a lot of sun, that seems like a good way of doing it. In the UK... Hmm. So, my choices are probably UV lights, but I don't want to really get to that expense. So, I may uh, see a friend of mine and see if he'll help me out at some point. Take it along to one of, these, one of these tanning places. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's one just up the road. I'll pop in. Hi, pop my in. legs are brown enough, but my nest is too brown. I want to turn it white. Huh? <laughs> I guess yeah. the irony is that it's the sun that turned them yellow in the first place. Yeah. Exactly that, exactly that. But it's always interesting when I watch these YouTube videos to see that they can actually get 
as close to the original colour as possible using that process. Now, how long it lasts for, again, is up for discussion. But uh, it does seem to do the job. It's not like that's not the end of the the console casing. It can have another life and still look yeah. as close to the original. I mean, it was almost um, white, really. It's probably just an off-white. But still, mm. that's that's what I've got there is definitely not white. Mm. And even the controller is yellowed as well. So that would need the treatment too. You wouldn't have thought you could fix it, would you? No. I mean, I'd have thought it was... It looks permanent. I mean, certainly this one, it looks mm. it looks pretty hardcore. This has been in the sunshine and got caught badly. I mean, it's not like the sur- it's not like something on the surface, is it? It's like it's the the plastic is yellow. You know, it's yeah. not you can't scrape it off. You know, there's yeah. I mean, I've thoroughly cleaned it as I do every console acquisition I have, just because I don't. If you think, I don't think people really clean them out. <laughs> No. And they just literally, after 30-odd years, it's got all the same, what you can imagine, what's in between controller buttons and stuff after 30 years of use. Yep. Even if it's been stored away in an attic or a garage, still, spiders have been there. And I've opened PlayStation yeah. 1s, and there's been a dead spider in there. It's probably been rotting away for 10 years. So yep. you never know what you're going to find inside. I haven't found any buried treasure yet, but i found spiders, and dust, dead ants... Mm. And I won't even speculate what some of the other bits are. Fingernails. Yeah, I found a fingernail before. <laughs> How they got a fingernail into a console, I don't know, but there was definitely a fingernail in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, skin yeah. debris. All the good stuff, you know, that you don't Things. really want lingering on a device you're using. So I always give them a good clean, open them up. And half of it's morbid curiosity to actually open all one up myself in person and see what's inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember opening up the Sega Mega Drive for the first time, and I've got a Yamaha keyboard behind me, and I used to work kind of freelance with Yamaha for a while, doing promotional DVDs with them for keyboards and digital pianos. And even before that, I had a fondness for Yamaha because I was like the way their MIDI music synthesizers sounded compared to some of the competition. I mean, for example, on the PC, I had a card called the SW60XG. So it was MIDI, and it also gave you Yamaha's XG extended set of MIDI, which was basically extra instruments, extra effects, etc., etc. And then there was another one after that, the SW1000XG, which was just uh, like the next level up. But I've always liked the sound. So opening up the Sega Mega Drive and seeing the Yamaha FM chip in there, there was just a, oh, wow. Yamaha's there too. <laughs> just nice to see it in there. And to go, oh, I'm going to have to touch it. Because, you know, things always feel real when you touch it. You have to be careful of touching them, don't you? Can you blow well, one? It hadn't been plugged in for quite some time, let me tell you. Um, but no, I wasn't de-earthed or anything, so I've probably done a mortal sin. But trust me, it's working absolutely fine. And they don't make these chips anymore, presumably? Don't think so, no. Unfortunately not. Mm. It would be interesting to have a Sega Mega Drive with modern components, but maybe you don't need that now because you've got all this FPGA. Which is... I think it's a shame when they actually stop manufacturing these things. You think they should just trickle them out forever, really. It's like someone will always buy... Like if you could buy one now in a, in a box new, I mean, it would be nice, wouldn't it? 
why do, why not why why stop the production why not just just keep it going yeah i guess I mean, though... imagine, imagine if single imagine if you could still buy a new zx81 or spectrum in off the same production line it came off before yeah, Great, yeah. Yeah, but I, I guess again, I think FPGA fills that void quite nicely, and I think a lot of the components, because Sega, they wouldn't build a lot of the chips themselves. I mean, for example, they use the Yamaha Music FM chip in there, so they would definitely have to outsource to get that. Yeah, so it's very I mean, dependent on Yamaha saying, "Oh yes, we're going to keep making this FM chip forever," as well as Sega committing to their side of things. I get. I, I mean, I guess that my, my my proposition is fairly stupid, really, because you, <laughs> you, you need you need to do these things in in huge numbers, don't you, to make it work? Like Absolutely, you know, whoever yeah. makes the the keyboard membrane for a Spectrum, they'd they'd still need to be doing it, wouldn't they? It's like, why would they? You know, they probably didn't take orders for less than fifty thousand ago. You know, so. But even so, exactly even that. so. Yeah, I would so, buy. I'd love to buy a new, a, a new, a brand new Spectrum or something. Mm. So your Nest does it have its box and all that? My Nest does it have? It, no, literally just the Nest. But I guess if the Nest is anything to go by, the box would have been pretty horrific. <laughs> mm. Do you know? I've yeah. not been that bothered about boxes. And I know it's oh, nice to have a complete set and everything, but I do actually just put the console on display. So where would I put the box? It's just yet another thing to store. But I do like to have working ones, so I can have a fussy and just plug it in and have a go. And this one works absolutely fine. It's playing Super Mario Brothers 3. And getting a better of appreciation of NES music. I'm sure you can remember a couple of podcasts ago. Probably fairly naively said, that, oh yeah, these 8 bit consoles like the Master System and the NES. And to be honest, it was the Master System I'd only ever really played a lot of to understand the music quality. The NES, not so much. But now, after playing just that one game, it's quite a bit beyond what the Master System was capable of. So I feel a bit silly saying that now. So I take it back. The NES does actually, for what it does in beeps and bops, some of the drum sounds were actually really impressive, I would say. It is to NES fans. That yeah. been converted. <laughs> I never, I never had one. I had a SNES, I think. I don't know where it is. I should still have it. Maybe I still have it. I definitely had a SNES. I've got a working mm. SNES. I don't really use it that much though, because it's again, it's real hardware. Um, and there's two versions of the SNES as well. So there's a two-chip variant and a three-chip variant. One's got better RGB output than the other, quite significantly so, and it's the later revision where it's got the better RGB output. And unfortunately, I've got the earlier one. So it's nice in one sense I've got an earlier model, but the RGB output isn't as good. And when I'm looking at on a big screen, you tend to notice if it's not quite right. So as much as I love playing with Sega Mega Drive, one of the things it's quite prone to is jail bars where you have lines vertically across the screen and there's quite a bit of interference in it i've changed all the capacitors and that was just more because it was it was old i just wanted to make sure it had another 30 plus years in it 
But there's all kinds of other interferences you can get in it as well. And there's all sorts of guides online. You can lift a pin on one of the chips and it'll stop the composite output from causing interference with the main RGB signal. And there's all these other... You can get a mod that will bypass it all and give you a clean signal. But it's, it's like money. It's money. It's more money. It's more money. And to be honest, what I've got on the Mega Drive, even with the minor jail bar stuff that's going on, it's... It's so much fun to play. It's it's good enough. But if you had the money, spare, and the time, you could go crazy and get the purest signal you've ever seen from, from real hardware. And the yeah. SNES, it's pretty much the same sort of scenario. But I've done that to a certain point with the Mega Drive, and I bought one of the cartridges you can get where you can put a micro SD card in and play ROMs. So I've got like all the Mega Drive games just on a micro SD card, which is insane. I'm playing on real hardware, which is great. Um, and you could do the same with the SNES and a lot of other consoles, but these sorts of cartridges to be able to do that are quite expensive. The Mega Drive is actually one of the cheaper ones, but if you got one for the SNES, and the SNES cartridges often had extra chips in them to add extra graphical flair. Yeah. So to have all the chips supported and to be able to save the game at any point, which is quite handy to have, um, you know, I'm not five years old anymore. I ain't got all the time in the world to be playing games. So having a save point is so helpful. Um, yeah, you can be talking £100, £150, £200, depending on the system. Just just cough up the money. Yeah, okay. That's, that's good advice, Tony. I'll speak to the wife and see what she says. <laughs> it's a bit like vinyl, isn't it? Sounds better. Is it? Is it like warmer? Is it slightly warmer? Uh, no. Is it a warmer experience? <laughs> there is a there's a, real, a definite a realness. Yeah, sprites, a, are, sprites are warmer. There's definitely a nostalgic <laughs> kick by using real hardware, which I've never quite got the same using emulation. But I think mm. that's more my brain saying it's emulated, and that's not necessarily a bad word, but. I just know it's not a hundred percent. So even though I've got jail bars, even though there's a mild bit of interference, I know this is a Sega Mega Drive playing as a Sega Mega Drive should. And in fact, yeah. if I'd played a Sega Mega Drive back in the day, it would have been plugged in by the RF antenna on the back of the TV. So I would have had to have tuned the TV to get the right signal and been playing around with it quite a bit to get a clear as possible signal. And then mono sound are now with you know just being able to plug it in and get stereo which the original sega mega drive had because you could plug in the port around the front but i would not have plugged that in back in the day or put headphones in it would have always gone through the tv for rf and i never thought about stereo sound never came into the equation and i certainly wouldn't have had rgb so to plug it into something like an ssc an RGB scart around the back and composite mm. and VGA even, which is handy for the Dreamcast. Just to be playing it on the large TV is just oh, this glorious experience. You just It's not just nostalgia trip. It's like you're sit, playing these games like you've never played them before. 14-inch um, TV would have been <laughs> what I used originally when I had a Sega Mega Drive for a little mono speaker. And as much as that was great at the time, you know, things have moved on. And I'm still able to enjoy old hardware through modern devices. 
Yeah, I guess the T the TV signal is the is the main thing for for authenticity, isn't it? Because you know an actual TV. I mean, TVs were not designed to be showing showing computer screens, so it it. it you know, there was the, there was a the kind of blur, wasn't there, to the pixels? I mean, I remember artists saying, eight uh, bit artists saying that they they had to make the graphics on a TV because you you, you needed that bleed, you know, otherwise you were not you were, you know, if you were just doing pixels, pure pixels, you you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to compensate for that for that slight for that slight bleed across the across the pixels that a tv would give you so these guys were making you know they they, they only wanted to draw graphics on a on a natural tv i mean a good one but it needs to be a, a natural tv to get to get that effect you know and that's the warmth that's the warmth you see james <laughs> that, you, that, you, that, you, that you're looking for with the, the authentic experience um but of course everyone knackered their eyes I remember. Well, particularly with 8-bit computers. Well, loading with screens bad. on 8-bit computers. Oh, my word. It, 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 you know, now we just have like maybe a spinning logo or a flashing loading bit of text. But back then, it was like it could cause epilepsy fits. It was insane, the amount of flashing that was going on. That border thing. But that yeah. was so great. I loved that. My dad literally watched me loading up games and all the lights were off, and he said, turn the lights on. <laughs> they sit in front of there. And that's before people really, uh, there were certainly no warnings on games and things back then about, you know, this this flashing. No. If you have, suffer from epilepsy, don't play this game. Or if your like, eyes are photosensitive, et cetera, et cetera. There was nothing like that then. And now I was sat in front of a TV as close as possible with this loading screen absolutely... Goodness knows what it would have been doing to my eyes. Look at my eyesight's okay, but still. Well, it wasn't like it was flashing the whole screen on and off, was it? It was it was more an alternating pick colour in the border, wasn't it? So Yeah, but rapid fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it's pretty random, but um but yeah, I used to love that stuff. I'm gonna put that into my game actually when you get when, I don't know when some incoming message comes or something, I'm just gonna go on the border. It'd be great. No, absolutely. I Great mean, effect. that was one of the things you used to rate the game on how good it was, was those loading transitions. So you'd, you'd wait for a little bit, and then maybe you'd get some music start up. And on the Commodore 64, hearing the SID chip start up with a really good tune, you're like, yeah, this is good. And then maybe the picture would start loading, this still picture, which would take some time. And then it'd finally fill the screen. And you'd be sat looking at that, and uh, Ocean Software did some fantastic... Sid music for the Commodore 64. And you just used to listen to the music and wait. Now that loading to do the image and the music probably took a minute. <laughs> yeah, so it's well, added like, to your loading, overall loading time, but it became part of the experience. They got quite sophisticated on the 64, didn't they? Because you, you, effectively you'd write a loader which was a program which would then load the real game. And, then, and as, as more stuff went into the loader, then the loader itself became probably as big as some of the early games in the first place, you know. <laughs> but yeah, they were doing, they were, I mean, they were dancing the screen. They were doing things on screen and audio and all sorts while the main game was loading. It's very sophisticated stuff. Real demo scene stuff, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, something that's not really done anymore now is getting a tape on a magazine. I mean, a later version of that would be getting a demo CD or a demo DVD and putting it into your console or, you know, computer. 
But certainly when I had a Commodore 64, I didn't buy too many retail games because the magazines would have like five, six games on per cassette. And they were good games as well. But I think it's because I was late on in the life of the Commodore 64 then. It was quite a late stage thing, that that, load, that tape on the front, you yeah. know. But it was like, really, this is how I you got really content. Yeah, I never liked that stuff, actually. And I didn't like, I thought it spoiled the magazines. I didn't like the way they stacked up when, there was, when they were all bulging out because of the bit where the tape was. And then it was always sellotaped on and, and the, the, you had to get the sellotape off without, without it lifting the, the, the color layer off the magazine. Just wrong. <laughs> But it has so much good stuff on there, Tony. Yeah, I guess. I remember trying a speech synthesizer for the Commodore 64, which was hilarious. It made a big thing about it only used 8K of memory. That's great, but you could tell. <laughs> I'm a Commodore 64 speech synthesizer using only 8K of memory. It was, it was really like that. And a lot of it was inaudible, but still... It was a speech synthesizer, and I must have played with that for hours, <laughs> just seeing what I could get it to say, like farts and all the silly stuff. But that, you know, yeah. that came on a magazine tape, mm-hmm. and you want I want to brought that, but it was free. I thought oh, I'll give this a whirl and see what you can do with the thing. Mm. Yeah, they used to have a disc, didn't they? Later on, there'd be like a. a CDs. You remember, like PC Pro magazine stuff? We'd always have a CD on it with. Um, Four million different applications. Yeah, have have a four thousand clip art. <laughs> yeah, you I couldn't have guess. something without clip art going on. Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, what was the point? Because you could just get it all off the internet. Well, a lot of those, certainly the lot of the early CDs I had on magazines, I didn't have the internet, no. so having. I mean, a lot of them would also put his 100 mods for, I don't know, Duke Nukem 3D or whatever. Now, I wouldn't have gone hunting around for those. And if I did have the internet, it would have been dial-up at that time, which was painfully slow. I mean, I remember driving... I remember downloading drivers for, like, sound cards and stuff using a dial-up modem, and it was not a fun experience. And the driver may have only been 5 megabytes, but it felt like an eternity with dial-up. Yeah. The only good thing about it was it took up the phone line so no one could call you. You never cold calls back then. You were too busy taking up the line with your dial-up mode. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think... uh, That was horrible, wasn't it? Modems. Yeah. Horrible. The introduction sound and everything. But, you know, you hear that sound now and it's like, oh, nostalgic trip. But you wouldn't want to hear it every day when you connect to the internet now. No, it's a nice sound in the way that the spectrum loading and Commodore loading was a nice sound, but it, it, you you don't want to no, you don't want to dial up anymore. No, 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 that was bad. Was it twenty? Was it sixteen? And then it was like a, a twenty-eight eight and a thirty-six six was the top. I think it was screen. twenty-eight and it was a thirty-three point six. And mm. I think I had a fifty-six. I think. Which was actually my yeah. only dial-up modem, and that was that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was. Who was it? Oh, FreeServe. I think it was one of the first ones I had. It was unlimited. I think it was. Fr- it was literally free, but it would cut you off every couple of hours. 
So if you were downloading yeah. files, which again would take very long on dial-up, if it was too big or you did it too late on in your dial-up routine, it'd probably disconnect, reconnect, and you'd lose where you were. So file downloaded programs where it would resume were a big thing at the dial-up stage. We, we had a special problem here in Hull because um, we, we have this bizarre private telephone company that has that has an, an, a, a motorbike. Yeah, F1. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we had uh, – it's great here in Monaco – um, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> we, we, have, we, have a, we have a private t- telephone network here that's run by a monopoly in, in effect. Uh, and I don't, I mean, I'm still fighting it now. And I don't know how it continues to exist as it does. But, but what we had was, unlike the rest of the country, we had local calls of 5P, un- unlimited um, length duration. Which was which was unique, and, and in those days that was like a good thing because there was no downside to it. So the dial-up the dial-up internet was also controlled by this um, by this company, KCOM, they're called. Um, and so you could connect to the internet, but then your call was only ever going to cost you five p forever. So pe- because there was, but there was a limit on how much how many consecutive sessions they could they could handle for the internet so if you if you got your connection to the internet then you you could you you were encouraged to to hold it live hold it high forever because you might not get back on again so so that that, that very quickly created a, a special problem in that that once people were, were connected to the internet they would never unconnect and, and lose the slot you know so just and the problems still still continue to this day. Yeah, it's, we're kind of dependent on the internet now. It's even had a few Wi-Fi problems today for no expected reason. So I rebooted the router twice, and then it was absolutely fine. But it's like, you know, my house has got quite a lot of smart devices in it. My doorbell started complaining that I couldn't connect to Wi-Fi, therefore could not alert me that someone was going to come to the door. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) great. It's all very well until nothing works anymore. Exactly, yeah. Come the the apocalypse, you're absolutely screwed. Well, my wife was going to trigger one of the Google speakers to ask... I can't remember what the question was going to be, but she was going to ask it something. And they all pretty much chimed in at the same time. I'm sorry, we cannot connect to Google services at the moment. Please try again. Or I was like, oh, wow, okay. There may not yeah. be Skynet just yet, but when there's no internet, they soon complain. Yeah. So there's an argument for, for getting rid of all of that stuff and, and going back to like, going back to nature, James. Going back to nature, my word. Does that mean the fig leaf? Living in the forest. Living in the forest. I don't think we could cope in the forest. I've never actually been in a tent. It's good fun. I, I, this is something me and my wife want to do. But, uh, yeah. yeah, let's hope I've got 5G. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise you'd be found dead. Oh, like, lovely. Thank you. That's encouraged me to go camping. <laughs> years later, it's like, look at these guys. They're, they're only, they're only 500 yards from the, from, from the nearest road, but you know, they had no internet and yeah, I couldn't, Google maps was not working. They could not find out the way out of the supermarket. <laughs> they were, they were lost forever and, and died. 
well, and embrace, embrace together in their tent. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us in Game and Gadget Podcast number 10. <laughs> we'll see you next time. And hopefully I'll survive until number 11 if I go camping. <laughs>